Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 459 of the podcast and it is the 8th of November 2019 as I record this in Bath on a very wintry day. It's pretty cold outside but I am snug in my sound booth with my sound blankets which definitely serve multiple purposes. (laughs) So today I'm talking about how to write your darkness with David Wright, one of the co-writers at Sterling and Stone known to many of you as Dave from Johnny, Sean and Dave at the Story Story Studio podcast, uh, previously the SPP or self-publishing podcast. So uh, I've known Dave and Johnny and Sean, I guess, for, you know, a decade now because we were some of the early people in the uh, indie days. And uh, so it's really great to check in with people that you've known for this long. And they've all been on the show and multiple times (laughs) over the last decade. And it's always kind of interesting to see where people go next. Dave has not done a nonfiction book before, so really great to talk to him. Now, we are talking about turning your darkness into stories. Uh, you know, I guess for some people, I'll I'll give a trigger warning. <laughs> I think personally, we, we should be facing anything that we have in terms of issues. And many of us as writers, we actually write to heal ourselves and also to heal others. So um, obviously with Dave, we don't get into too much detail, but um, I guess a bit like the episode I did with Michael Brent Collings on uh, depression, there are some things we talk about in here that, um, you know, we talk about as writers going through mental health difficulties, life challenges, and turning those into our writing. So that is coming up. In publishing and book marketing news, very excited because Findaway Voices have just announced that they have added keywords as a new metadata field. Now, you might think this is not exciting. But I tell you, if you haven't done audiobooks yet, one of the most frustrating things is discoverability. If you are an audiobook listener, you will find on the apps that you use that there are very few categories. And what has happened, obviously, to places like Amazon and Kobo over the years and um, Apple Books is that they have added more and more subcategories. And this is what we need in audiobooks. But also, we need keywords. Now, keywords help with people finding us for discoverability. And this is even harder for audiobooks than it is for ebooks and print. So Findaway Voices um, say keywords help listeners find your audiobooks in searches. This new metadata field is optional, but an effective way to increase the visibility of your work on some retailers, because of course, not all of them are going to use those keywords. But uh, I will be going in and adding keywords to all of my audiobooks. Uh, I haven't done it yet because I just got this update. So very excited. Again, links in the show notes as ever. But if you do publish wide for audio on Findaway, then uh, you can now add keywords. 
So in Futurist stuff, um, I've talked about this a number of times because it's been a sort of um, staged release, but OpenAI has released the full version of GPT-2, the AI text generator. Now, uh, as I've told you before, you can check it out at talktotransformer.com. And all you do on that site, talktotransformer.com, is you can put in a few sentences. Now, I put in some sentences of my own books. So um, I've been trying this multiple times and uh, it has definitely got better. So I just tried it uh, literally just before this with a couple of things. I put in the final few lines of Map of Plagues uh, and clicked generate. Now, a good idea is to click generate a couple of times and have a look. And what it's in, what it generates like a paragraph of text. There might be some dialogue, there might be some other things, some narrative, some whatever. And it's pretty interesting in that uh, it's not complete gobbledygook. It is not necessarily usable. As, well, it's definitely not usable as is for, for fiction, but it's a creative prompt. The first one it uh, came up with actually made me laugh out loud. <laughs> I was like, really? That is incredible. And uh, it gave me some interesting ideas in the same way that when I do research behind my fiction, I might read a book and I'll be highlighting things and I won't use that line um, as is, unless I'm using it as a quote, but uh, I might read something, uh, let's say about a cave, and I might then use a couple of words of this description to spark my own description of a cave or decide that I'll put that as a setting in my book. So I think this is quite similar for fiction in that um, it was more like a creative writing prompt, but definitely interesting. Nonfiction, though, was actually scary in that I put in uh, some lines about productivity from my next book on productivity for authors, which is coming out in December and uh, and available right now in the NaNoWriMo story bundle. But what it generated about productivity, and I did it, press the button maybe four times, it was absolutely usable as is. That was what was scary. I, it had, um, it made sense. It was in the right voice. One of its generations was like a bulleted list of things that were actually good ideas. <laughs> and it was like, Okay then. Now, as I explained back in the AI episode in 437, uh, episode 437, uh, which was only like July, uh, but this kind of text generation is already used by journalists in the sports and finance industries in particular. But also the first AI generated textbook has been published. And since what's interesting about GPT-2 is they've trained it on certain, you know, data sets, but I would love to train um a GPT-2 style algorithm on thecreativepen.com since I've published millions of words now and also my own books. Uh, I've also published, um, I haven't actually counted all my words, but I'm definitely up to a million. I've got like 32 books um, and that's just the ones I've told you about. <laughs> I do have some early books that I withdrew from the market. Uh, we all have practice books, just happens. Uh, but definitely I would love for to have this model, as I've said before, to generate stuff for me in my writing voice. This could be research, this could be idea generation, it could be even be first draft material that then I could edit into um, something that other people might want to read. So 
This stuff is fascinating from a copyright law perspective, but I'm not a lawyer. It's just something I'm interested in. If you are a coder and you love the GPT-2 stuff, uh, I'm definitely interested in this. Uh, you can always email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. Uh, if you listen to the interview I did with Grant Faulkner on NaNoWriMo, we did mention NaNoGenmo, which is about generating a novel in a month. And they actually... Uh, People doing NanoGenro have an area on GitHub where they post um, information about this and their code. And I just checked it and they mentioned uh, using the API, which is a sort of a, think of it as a sort of data feed um, from fanfiction.net as a way to train story text. So this is really interesting because, of course, fanfiction is, you know, you can't, you're not meant to be able to do fan fiction because those characters belong, they're copyrighted by the owners and that type of thing. But lots of people write fan fiction and that, of course, uh, became um, Fifty Shades of Grey is probably the most famous um, fan fiction that turned into a juggernaut of its own. But fascinating to kind of hear that they are training models on fan fiction. So... I know that some of you right now are feeling uncomfortable and I come up against these uncomfortable feelings all the time. Part of my, well, I think part of my mission really is to almost tackle some of these uncomfortable things before you have to. <laughs> and this is why. And I, I, the reason I'm covering all this is because I think we have to tackle this. I will be having an interview in uh, early 2020 around copyright and hopefully we'll talk about, well, more and more, we have to talk about the potential of copyright in an AI text generation world. <laughs> but um, I wanted to kind of, let's just stop a minute and examine why do we feel uncomfortable about this? And so I came up with some questions. I think that we feel uncomfortable because it's cheating, in inverted commas. Let's put it in inverted commas. Is it cheating to use a text generation algorithm to create a first draft? Is that cheating? Do you think it's not enough work, for example? Uh, is it cheating to use a keyboard and a computer to type fast? Or is it cheating to dictate using a recorder plus uh, text-to-speech, sorry, speech-to-text generation? Is that cheating? Is it cheating to listen to audiobooks on 2x speed and call it reading? Is it cheating that some authors use paid ads to sell more books? Is it cheating to use Amazon KDP to self-publish a book for free when a traditionally published author has had to go through a long process of selection only to be published on the, the exact same platform for lower royalties? So those are some questions for you to think about because when I use that word cheating to kind of come up with a few scenarios, these are some of the other things that people say are cheating. For example, you know, lots of people say to me, oh, you didn't read that book because you listened to it on audiobook. And I'm like, oh, no, it's my brain. And uh, audio is an input method. So anyway, all of these things are using technology for what we do as independent authors in a 
technology-assisted world. <laughs> and I think GPT-2 is part of the next wave of disruption. Uh, I think it won't be called GPT-2. In fact, um, natural language generation is what uh, the area is known as, NLG. So if you are interested in this, and I think we have to be, and I'm not a programmer, really important that you know, you know, I am not a programmer. Yes, I have worked in technology, but more on the kind of functional consultant side, helping people understand how technology might impact their job. And I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to do with us now. So in my mind, we use all the tools we can to make our life possible and scalable. So I'm right this minute, of course, I am using a microphone, I'm using an iPad, I'm using a laptop, I'm using software on my computer. Uh, So it's not just me sitting here talking to myself, I'm using tools. And then I obviously I'm using the internet to get it to you and um, apps that people have built. This is the way we do business now. So I want you to not restrain yourself and not shut down when we start talking about this type of thing uh, because we have to expand our possibilities and engage with what's happening with AI so we can shape the conversation rather than be impacted by it years down the track when we will have no power. And this idea of power is so important and something that I care very much about. I do believe in the empowered creative, um, the empowered author who can make decisions, informed decisions about their creative life. Of course, you may decide that you much prefer handwriting uh, your books in a, you know, on handmade paper. (laughs) with a quill or an ink or something. And awesome, go with it. Uh, But you will have to put that out into the world at some point. So we all use tools. So let's not shut down the possibilities of future tools um, as things change. So that's my, uh, my futurist segment today. So my personal update, uh, hopefully you can tell I am back up to speed. (laughs) I do go from, um, you know, sort of top speed to zero. uh, um, And I did get sick in Vegas. I am finally recovered from sickness and jet lag. And it was a fantastic trip brain wise and intellectual stimulation wise. But it was not a good trip health wise or sleep wise. And I am... um, I need a lot of sleep. Uh, I think for my brain to just, well, definitely for my brain to work effectively, I need sleep. And so jet lag always just kills me. So it takes a week of flying, you know, to fly into Vegas from the UK, it's eight hours difference. So it's basically a night's sleep. <laughs> so it takes a week, is that let's say an hour a day, which is what jet lag does. And yes, I've tried melatonin and it just doesn't work. It gives me like a like a hangover. I feel like I have a hangover. So my brain doesn't work. Whereas I'd much rather just have a natural sleep cycle that's <laughs> off kink. Um, anyway, uh, yes, I'm back. I'm I'm recovered. And I went through, like I typed up all my notes from the Business Masterclass with Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush. And it was really fantastic. I typed up a lot of notes and I thought about, I was going to do a separate show on it, but I can't. It is too much. And I haven't uh, fully imbibed everything. I need this time to percolate. This was big stuff. This was not just, hey, go to a class and learn how to write better characters or uh, how to do, you know, some ads or 
things that are, this was nothing short term, basically. This was all long term mindset and business ideas that will change the way I do business. And, you know, hopefully as Chris and Dean bring this information to the world, uh, it will uh, also help you think about your business differently. I have thought a lot about what I want to spend my time on, what I value in terms of my lifestyle, what is truly evergreen, the value of intellectual property. Uh, And so I'll be bringing these things into my year-end roundup and my goals for 2020, which I post on 31st of December and the 1st of January every year. I do those. Brilliantly, though, because I was like, oh, well, what can I tell you that would be interesting to some of you who want to know more? So fantastically, Chris Rush has posted uh, an article. She has been writing. She's now done 16 blog posts on rethinking the writing business. So you can go and read all of them. But this one, which is number 16, is called Paradigm Shift. Um, And essentially talks about one of the moments that was transformational. We did a role play, well, we didn't, we watched a role play exercise around um, licensing and it really did change the perspective of the authors in the room to kind of realise that the power dynamic shifts when you do IP licensing in the right way. And so I I will put the links in the show notes or you can go to chriswrites.com, K-R-I-S, rights.com and look uh, for the business musings uh, of, I guess, the end of 2019. Uh, But a quick quote, Chris says, how do you make the paradigm shift from powerless writer to powerful owner of IP? The first shift has to happen in your own mind. Just because you haven't yet licensed much of that IP doesn't mean that the IP lacks value. The IP is waiting there for you to work with it inside of publishing and out. There's so much in just these few sentences and if you are just starting out, you need to understand what IP is, what is intellectual property and what that means as a writer. And once you start down that track, once you start to understand IP and what we create as writers, you start to think, whoa, okay, this, like I did, this is a brilliant business. This is fantastic. And uh, there's so much that you can create um, in terms of, you know, we create a book, but we also create value and income for potentially our lifetime and 70 years after we die, according to copyright law. So if you don't understand IP and you're wondering why I'm talking about it, then you kind of need to go back to the basics. Um, This is stuff that writers are not educated on. There are many reasons why they're not educated in it. But I think, again, it's about power. It's a bit like money. Most of us are not educated on money. And again, it's about power. And if you want power, you need to get educated. Oh, I have so I, I think I have a lot of things going on right now. In fact, I, I know I have a lot of things going on right now. My brain is... Uh, yeah, kind of dealing with Frankfurt and then Vegas and a lot of the stuff that is coming up for me is around shifting the business. And I know I've been talking about this for a while, probably a whole year actually, because um, you you get to this point in your business where you've met your goals and you really are still searching for the next goal. And I'm still there. I met all, I've met all my goals and all my financial goals and a lot of my creative goals already. I never thought I would write 32 books. <laughs> and I still have many more. So on that um, personal stuff, 
Uh, I am, it is November and I am doing NaNoWriMo. Now I say I am doing it because I have actually written 6,000 words this week, uh, but I am well behind uh, already. And that is because, of course, I was sick, recovering, doing admin. My husband also just got back from New Zealand. We haven't seen each other for almost a month and we spend like every day together. So this is spending time together is a priority for a happy marriage. And uh, so I am favouring time with my husband than I am doing NaNoWriMo. So I also have another problem, which is I normally finish a book before I start another one. And at the moment, I have the book on audio for authors, which is, I've got about 25,000 words of that one. And it's well structured already. I also have plot ideas down for the next arcane novel. And I'm also attempting to do Map of the Impossible, (laughs) which feels impossible at the moment. And I understand the creative process. I know that if I keep going back to the page, it will emerge. Um, So I need to take some of my own advice, declutter my brain and decide what I want to do in the next, uh, let's say the next month before I move into December party mode. (laughs) In England, we tend to, uh, yeah, around Christmas, well, maybe everywhere, um, you know, we have lots of sociable things. So I did have a tip uh, for you this week. Again, I know this is a rather long intro, but I feel like I haven't been talking to you much over the last few weeks because of the various trips. Um, So I did have a little tip uh, from writing this week. Um, I had a new character arise. Um, There was a need for a new character. And also, uh, I know, you know, I kind of had an idea of something I wanted to write and this character would fit. So and I had a name that a name just, you know, immediately popped into my mind. So I started writing with this name. And then I remembered, oh, I have to use my character list. And this is something I learned. I have done this wrong in other books. Um, And I have not really realized it until I've done audio. Uh, So essentially, you have to put your characters in a character list in alphabetical order in order to see your own biases as a writer. So what you're going to see, first of all, is that a lot of the names start with the same letter. For some reason, when we reach for a name, often we will reach for something similar. And you will mess this up. Um, So in one of my books, I had Jenna and Jamie. And in one place in the book that made it all the way through to the live version, I I switched, I got the names wrong. And also they, yeah, it's just too easy to type the wrong name. Uh, So having characters that where their names start with a different letter is a really good thing. Also that they sound different. So again, I have uh, a lot of women's names, for example, end in a, um, Joanna, Sienna, uh, that type of thing. So it's good to kind of mix them up uh, around that so that they sound different. And what I discovered when I wrote this character name in my list is, oh dear, that name is not going to work because when I read it aloud, if I have a scene between this character and that character and I'm reading it aloud, it's going to sound similar, even if the uh, names begin with a different letter. So that was good because I then had to completely change my character name. And for me, names are really important and I spend a lot of time on names. So I had to go back to my drawing board and kind of figure out, all right, so if the, if, and and I have a lot of, um, all my characters are multicultural 
And so I knew I wanted to have some Armenian uh, in this character. So I was looking at Armenian names and trying to figure out how I could do that. And, you know, a name that would have meaning, but also uh, would be right in a uh, sort of writing uh, in a character background kind of way. So anyway, those are just some things around character names. Put them in a list in alphabetical order. Right. uh, I also have three books out in German this week. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I've also been busy with that. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to do a separate show on all my thoughts and tips over that. But yes, I have books in German now, which is cool. So thanks for all your emails and tweets uh, this week. A couple, um, Tenzin says, I love the show with Vikram Chandra as I can relate to the cultural reference discussed. I grew up watching Bollywood films and now living in the UK still haven't changed my interest. Sacred Games is on my list to watch now. Fantastic. Um, Oh, and Andrew Northwell says that he finds the show helpful. I wouldn't have known about Nano or where to start if it wasn't for you. Just wanted to say thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, I'm, and it's so funny. I'm talking about this next week. So next week I've got Mark Dawson on the show. And, you know, yes, we're talking about some ad stuff, but we also have a really quite a cool discussion about how some days it feels like we're in an echo chamber and we think everyone knows everything but they don't and we really are almost at the beginning of this journey as independents um uh, also this week there was a quite a hilarious discussion about family and friends never reading or liking our books and it made me laugh because it's totally true like my husband is my best friend um but he he reads huge fantasy books like as in you know doorstop size that's the type of book he likes and even the fantasy books i've written he's like yeah too short not even my thing you know <laughs> and i you know you have to you have to come to terms with the fact that your books are not going to appeal generally to your family and friends, even though you want them to. (laughs) So just a couple of uh, comments there. Um, Julie Cordoner says, I'd settle for even a bit of interest in the fact that I write. Never mind loving the result. Um, Jennifer Boller says, ain't that the truth? I gave my sister one of my books and she still hadn't finished it a year later. Glad to hear I'm not the only one. And Rachel Thompson uh, on Twitter says, uh, this is why I coach writers to write what scares you because they're usually so worried about what their family and friends will say or think when the truth is they won't read it anyway. And I like that quote because that leads into the discussion with Dave uh, because we talk about fear of judgment, which I have I really have had to deal with uh, with my book Desecration. That book percolated for many years and really only came up. I was only able to write it when I could sort of could get to grips with fear of judgment um, and also self censorship. So we self censor a lot when we fear other people reading our stuff, uh, and there are lots of ways to deal with that. Um, pen names are obviously one of them. Don't tell anyone is another one. <laughs> so fantastic so those are some of the tweets and emails you can always tweet me at the creative pen with a double n right so today's show is sponsored by my courses for writers since it's NaNoWriMo I thought I would mention that I have a course on how to write a novel and uh, you know I always need to revisit the basics and it, it 
it's good for me to look at how I do this every time and have to kind of remind myself of the journey. But I do have 17 novels, so I do know how to do this. And although, um, yes, yeah, so the course is open anytime. It is an evergreen course, so you don't have to be doing NaNoWriMo to take advantage of it. Uh, is it your dream to write a novel, but you just don't know where to start? Have you started writing only to run out of ideas? Are you suffering from self-doubt about whether you're good enough to write a novel? And are you overwhelmed by all the information and craft books that you are trying to learn? Do you want to strip everything back to basics and learn a step-by-step process to writing your novel? If yes, this course might be for you. Uh Carol says of the course, I have a full draft of my novel in progress now and I could not have done it without you. Your class gave me a roadmap and resources that would have taken me years to find. Plus you earned my trust along the way. And Jim says, the information is outstanding, laid out in a perfect order. It is a roadmap that takes you from self-doubt and confusion to typing the end. Uh, you can go to thecreativepen.com forward slash learn uh, to learn to find out more and all my courses uh, are there so yeah thecreativepen.com forward slash learn so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting which is <laughs> i just had my hosting bill for the year i pay annually and it's like whoo uh transcription and editing but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. Thank you so much if you support the show on Patreon. It means so much to me uh, that you do that. Um, thanks to new patrons, Ishani Sen, Dawn Starks, Ida Umphers, Heather Button and Dee Proudlove. In fact, there's a few great names in that list there, isn't there? Uh, I really do appreciate your support on Patreon. Like the tweets and emails, it demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. And you can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio plus the backlist. So tons more audio fun. Uh, you can support the show at Patreon dot com p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the creative pen right let's get into the interview David Wright is the co-author of 30-plus novels spanning horror, thriller, and sci-fi. He's also a podcaster at the Story Studio Podcast and one of the three co-founders of Sterling and Stone Story Studio with Sean Platt and Johnny B. Truant, both of whom have been on this show several times. Dave has a non-fiction book out, Into the Darkness, Hook Your Readers Without Getting Lost in the Dark, which I am really super excited about. So welcome back to the show, Dave. Thank you for having me back. I, I'm shocked that anybody ever asked me to return. I think this is your third appearance on the Creative Pen in the last decade. <laughs> that's about as often as my wife wants to see me. So that sounds about right. <laughs> Three times per decade. Oh, no, that's cool. And um, of course, we've, you know, we have met in person once uh, at um, the, the summit a few years ago, which was great. And I've, I guess, you know, we've talked about writing dark things um, before, um, but I think you have managed to avoid writing nonfiction up to this point. So why yes. this book and why now? Uh, basically, for a, for a long time, like Sean and Johnny, you know, they they like teaching. I don't particularly like it, and <clears throat> they've they've you know they both said you know people want to hear stuff from you. I'm like nah nah, 
And to, to me, like I, you know, I think of, you know, real writers in quotation marks, like Stephen King, Dean Koontz, Clyde Barker, other, other people I grew up reading. And yeah, I want to hear what they have to say about writing, but not what I have to say particularly. And two, two things kind of changed that one was, um, the smarter artist summit that we did last year. Um, I spoke on stage and told, uh, a rather depressing story (laughs) (laughs) Um, about how, um, you know, there were two two times in my life where, you know, I I was going in the wrong direction. And one of them, um, my best friend had, had, um, I may as well just tell a story. It's easier than just referencing it. Okay. So, Back in uh, back in 1996, uh, I was pretty much stagnating. Um, I was working midnight shifts at a gas station. I lived in an apartment with uh, another friend of mine, and my best friend at the time, Todd, had had moved on. He was in he was out of the navy. He was working at a bar, making a ton of money, and he kept telling me we were like best friends growing up. And he kept telling me, you know, come on, come move with me, you know, get, get out of, get out of your rut, do something different, do something with your life. And he was like the one person that actually believed in me becoming a writer, like before anybody, he's like, you're going to be the next Stephen King. Mm. So, uh, he kept asking me to come and I was like, you know, I always had excuses not to, I was kind of stuck in a rut, like I said. And the thing about it is when I met Todd, he was like this nerdy dorky kid and uh, he, he got picked on and I sort of, you know, stuck up for him and we had, we had this dynamic where like I was kind of the cool one. He's kind of the dorky one. And when he came back to visit me in February of 96, he was like totally changed. First of all, he, he looked like a, a male model now rather than a skinny, uh, <laughs> very weak <laughs> kid. And also he was just, he had confidence and charisma and, you know, he wanted to go to clubs and, you know, meet women and stuff. It's like a completely different person to me. Like we were both like these geeky dorks playing Dungeons and Dragons. And now he's this cool ass dude. And there was a part of me that, um, cause when he was criticizing me, he was trying to bring me up, but I saw it as him putting me down. Like he was looking down on me and it really annoyed us crap out of me. So what, what happened was, uh, he left, um, he, he left to go back home, um, in February. He, he, and we had this like kind of this argument and he was like, you know, what? if you know, you want to waste your life, you know, whatever. And I, I was just so mad at him. I didn't even walk him down stairs to go home. And I didn't think much about it because we would go months without talking, especially when he was in the Navy. And it never really, never really meant anything. Like when we saw each other, it was just like, you know, reuniting old friends and we picked up right where we left off. Not a big deal. And I figured, okay, this will go away. Um, we'll forget about it. Not a big deal. I never called to apologize. Never really thought much of it. And then on April 1st of the same year, I got a call from, or April 2nd, got a call from, his aunt whom I never even met. I don't even know how she had my number. And she told me that he died in a car accident. And that pretty much destroyed me for quite a while. And I, I, I was just full of regret for all the things that wouldn't happen now. I mean, we were, we had so many plans. We were going to like, you know, 
ruled the world. <laughs> a couple <laughs> of geeks. And everything just changed. I became depressed and I just fell into this this darkness. And, you know, if 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 he thought I was in a bad place before, I was really in a bad place then. And it took me a long time to to come out of it. And what happened was in two years ago, I went to the Smart Artist Summit that, you know, we were doing every year for a while. And Sean and Johnny, after after every conference or summit, whatever the hell we're calling it, uh, <laughs> after every after every one of them, we have we have a dinner and we, we talk about, you know, you know, how it went, where we are and, you know, what we want to do the next year. Sean, Sean's a very uh, he, he likes to, to think about these things. I'm just kind of like this chaotic mess and I just go wherever you point me. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking and Sean's like, you know you're, you're really not keeping up your end of the thing. It's kind of the conversation I had with Todd and he's like, you know, you're, you're worse than when we met, uh, you're missing deadlines. It, it took like a year to write this one book. Um, just a lot of the things that needed to be pointed out to me that I wasn't picking up on. So it was a moment and it reminded me a lot of the moment with Todd. Like I have a choice. I have a choice here. There's two paths I can go. One of them is to stay myself in, you know, live with my fear and anxiety and just let it rule me or I can take a chance on myself. And this time I made a different choice. So I already saw where the other choice, you know, brought me. Not not that I think Sean was going to die if I rejected him, <laughs> but mm. it, it just reminded me of where I was and where I needed to be. And it was a wake up call. And, you know, a year later it was this year at the summit, February. You know, I went on stage and told that story. And since then, you know, I've, I've, I've done really well. Like I I'm writing a lot more. I lost a bunch of weight. I'm down under 300 for the first time in forever. Uh, for, you know, comparison's sake, you know, I, I, I topped out at almost 400 at one point. Mm. And for a long time I've been hovering around 340 and right now I'm down to 272. So congratulations. I know that's a big thing. Yeah. So, um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, I told this story on stage and, and I talked about this. I talked a little bit about bullying and stuff and the stuff I dealt with. And I remember, you know, why I was talking about it. It just kind of came up. Um, and afterwards all these people came up to me and they like thanked me for sharing the story. Like they found me, you know, I, I was off to the side, you know, when other people were speaking, they would come up to me and tell me, you know, how much it meant that they shared and how, you know, they had similar situations. They had a similar point in their life or they were bullied. Uh, one guy was like, you know, this really alpha male sort of guy, like the kind of guy I think, you know, never had a problem in his life that he couldn't kick his ass. And he came up and he told me, like, you know, he went through the same stuff. And I was like, wow, I was just, you know, shocked by how many people had similar experiences to me. And in those two things uh, made me. Sean basically said, you know, yeah. You know, Stephen King, Dean Coates, all those people, they, they can write, they can write a nonfiction book, but they can't write your story and connect with the, the people that you connect with that you're like. So that, that's what made me write this. That's a very long way to get around to it. <laughs> no, but I think, I think well, it's, it's over now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a really good uh, illustration because it's funny. You started off by saying, I don't like teaching, but what no. you, you're not, you're, what you've done in the book, I mean, there are some writing tips, let's face it, you know, there are writing tips, but your point is you're sharing your experience. There's a lot of what I would say memoir 
in this book, which I think is the only way now to write nonfiction. Like you can't just say, write this, do that. You know, that's, and I think your idea of what teaching is, was probably wrong. And, you know, what Sean knows about you and what I have recognised in you is that you teach people by sharing your stories, you know? So yeah, I think but there's that there's that negative voice inside of me, like you know the the kid that was picked on and sat in the back of the class, uh, and that 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 kid's like nobody wants to hear what you have to say, nobody cares, just move on, and and, and it's hard to get over. Oh yeah, I mean of course, and many people don't get over it. But in the book, so uh, one of the quotes uh, from the book, I've read it; it's fantastic. You say that um, it might very well be necessary for my well-being to write dark books. So, I mean, you've hinted, obviously, um, Todd's death, uh, you know, you've mentioned, um, you know, bullying. Um, but how has writing actually helped you through this? Um, how has it helped you make those changes or help you deal with life? Well, I think it offers a catharsis, uh, a way to deal with, you know, feelings that are beyond, beyond my power, beyond my control. I mean, the the world is an insane place and horrible things happen all the time. Um, and it's really hard to wrap your head around how it can make any sense at all. And it doesn't, it really, it's random, chaotic, and it's hard. Uh, and I also, I, I deal with OCD and anxiety and that, that that's a big part of my headspace. Like that, that makes it even more hard because I, I tend to ruminate on horrible things and I need, I need some outlet. And when, when I was younger, you know, reading stories kind of transported me like an escape out of, you know, the real world and into this other world where things made a little more sense. And, you know, sometimes the, the, the good, the good people won in the end. And I, I needed that. I need, even if it's a fiction, I needed it. I needed it to get through. And now writing, it's about, you know, dealing with dark things, but also trying to find the hope, trying to find the, the light in the darkness to hold on to. And I don't know, for me, I just find that writing about it helps, helps me to see the, the good things in the world as well. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And and I wondered, um, you know, let, let's come back to a, almost a definition of dark, because it's funny. I, I mean, I read horror, um, yeah. but I don't watch horror movies. I find that they do affect me in, in ways, whereas I kind of devour horror novels, but only specific types of horror novels. Like you mentioned Dean Coots. Have you read his latest Jane Hawk series? No, I, oh, I, I, just brilliant. I, haven't, I haven't read them in a while. Uh, I yeah, so it's yeah, so, hard for me to read the horror stuff while also writing. But go no, ahead. no, fair enough. But um, my point, I guess, is Jane Hawk. They're, they're th they could be called thrillers, sci-fi slash horror. I mean, to me, the the horror side is, as you mentioned, it's fighting darkness with a with a ray of hope, and it's not. But a lot of people seem to think that horror is just sort of torture porn and lots of gore, um, which is not what I like at all. So right. I, there's a lot of death, to be fair, but you know, not in um in that, that torture porn to me is not the definition of of horror. So, you know, maybe you could talk about like when you talk about writing darkness, what does that mean to you? What does the genre mean? Uh well, for, well first off, I I I've never really cared for a lot of horror movies that do fall into that torture porn category. Um they 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 seem to be 
you know, they're titillating for, you know, you know, shocks value, uh, whatever that is. And that doesn't really do anything for me. It, 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 there's no real characters you can, uh, root for any of that. So I, I don't really enjoy that stuff. It's just too bleak and dismal. Uh, as far as the things, you know, I, I, I tend to write about the things that scare me. And when I was younger, I would write about monsters and like supernatural threats. But, you know, I had a kid and that kind of changed me. You get new fears when you have a child. Uh, you, you worry about your kid for one. Uh, and you see the world a little bit differently. You also see things you never really thought about as dangers. So I, I tend to write about things that, you know, scare the hell out of me. And, you know, bullying is you know, something from my own youth, but, uh, kidnapping and all, all the, all the horrible things that, you know, you see in the news, you know, you think about a little bit differently when you're a parent. And I write, I, I write up a, a bunch of different stuff. I mean, pretty much anything that that's ever terrified me, you know, our thrillers are more straight up, you know, in, in that area, you know, somebody being kidnapped, uh, there's murder, obviously, uh, but the sci-fi supernatural stuff, you know, we have monsters creeping in and stuff like that. But typically anything that, you know, affects me in some way that, you know, I don't want to think about, I force myself to think about to mm. deal with it. Catharsis. Yeah, that that forcing us through. And I mean, it's interesting because I, I really came up against when I wrote my um, novel Desecration, which I call a crime thriller, but, you know, has has some aspects of, of horror in. And I mean, the title, it, it does have, um, you know, dark, dark stuff in. And I came up against my own fear of judgment that, you know, I'm quite a happy little soul. Um, you know, I know you were quite surprised to w when I told you some of the things that, <laughs> that I, I write. And um, Yes, our dinner conversation was was, was one it? of my favourites ever, actually. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, you know, I, ha I do have a, a dark side, even though I'm quite this sunny, happy other side. So this fear of judgment, I mean, I, I still come up against this all the time. How do we not self-censor how do we you know is there a line we shouldn't cross or should we just let it let it go uh i think the line's different for everybody for, for, for me i think you don't want to i i get what you're saying about not wanting to be judged because you know i've met people and they're like what do you do you write horror oh wow okay there's something wrong with you like they, they they think the absolute worst like you enjoy watching bodies being ripped apart or something like that um and i'm actually pretty damn squeamish with stuff like that um i think the line is where you're, where you're not celebrating for instance we have uh we have a, a series called no justice which is like a vigilante thriller series and you know there's some pretty dark subjects in there there's uh a child abduction, rape and stuff like that. And we tell from the, the, the hero and the villains POV because we want, we want you to be in their heads. And it's very, it's a, it's a fine line where you you want to write about uh, a child abductor in a way that someone can be in their head, but also not where you're glamorizing it. Like, yes, I'm pro child murder. <laughs> uh, so it, it's, you want to write about the, for me, I always want to write the villain in a way that you can almost see why they are the good guy in their own story or the good girl. Um, 
you don't agree with what they're doing, but you know why. You see what happened in their life that led them to that way. And I think that to me is important for like really good fiction. And I think, you know, books and movies and TV are doing that a lot more these days where the villain is more shades of gray and you see, you know, you know, what they, what they are versus, you know, how, you know, their, their, their life could have been different, but you know, something really bad happened and it turned them into the monster that they are. And I, I like to kind of do that, but not in a way that, you know, glamorizes it. I think that that's a tough one because, you know, right now that movie, the Joker's coming out. Um, and the news is currently worried about, well, is that going to cause, you know, other incel guys that, you know, idolize the Joker to go out and, you know, shoot up places and stuff. Cause that, that happens mm. a lot, way too often. And it's tricky to, to make art in this day where, you want to write about something and bring it to light, but not in a way that glamorizes it and gives people something to aspire to or motivates them to do something horrible. Mm. I don't know if I've explained it well at all, but it, it is a fine line. I think just don't glamorize it. I don't know. That that's my that's my you know feeling on it anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, maybe it just it does come from the sense of what what we want to explore as authors and we're all different people, right? Yes. I mean, all of my dark stuff is all about, you know, coping with death and what's on the other side of death and, and beating monsters. And I quite like monsters and demons and, you know, banishing demons and stuff, um, you know, the, and, and it's weird because I, you know, you come back to the same themes over and over again. And I mean, like there's a joke on your podcast that children in jeopardy, that's your, yeah. that's your dark <laughs> trope that you just, can't avoid. <laughs> yeah. And that comes very much from, you know, when I had a kid, I was suddenly very terrified. Like it's something I never really thought about before. And then suddenly I was terrified, like all the horrible things that can happen. Yeah. And it's interesting because the, um, I mean, like right now, as we, as we talk, um, you know, we, c climate change, extinction rebellion is a big uh, fear amongst mm -hmm. young people, a young pe all of us, but there is a, a lot of anxiety amongst young people, of course, because, you know, we'll probably be dead and <laughs> they'll be, they'll, they'll be dealing with a lot of this, this stuff. And, and I, I see, I, I almost think there's, then there is going to be a resurgence in the sort of environmental horror genre, yeah. which we saw around the millennium. Do you remember we had a lot of extinction movies and, uh, you know, climate change things really uh, yes. were coming up then. And I, I feel like that's going to come back. And as generations deal with their, with their, what is in their culture right now, that comes up in, in horror. Yeah. It, it, that's interesting to me because in America anyway, things are so polarized between, you know, right wing and left wing. And while I see what you're saying, I think half the people would see that as some like some liberal agenda. Oh, you're, you're putting climate change in my horror movie. Well, no, it's not <laughs> real. And I refuse to see it in there. There, there are one starring movies before they even come out and everything is so polarized that I don't know that these things have the power at least here to, to become a huge thing anymore without, you know, half the country just decrying it as nonsense and uh, ridiculing it and destroying it before it can even do well in a the movie theater. 
Mm, well, everything's about, so politicized. Yeah. Well, what about then something like AI? Um, you know, we've seen AI is often artificial intelligence. Uh, yeah. In case anyone doesn't know, uh, you know, has come up in in movies. Um, that could be called sci-fi, but actually, you know, a lot of them do um, swing into horror. And I know you guys have written those out of Sterling and Stone as well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's a, a fear that is a kind of collective worry. Yeah, that's something everybody can be afraid of. Yeah. <laughs> Our robot overlords. <laughs> Our robot overlords. I guess what I'm saying is I think we write about, as you said, you know, you write about dark things in order to understand how you're going to deal with them or, you know, facing your fear without really facing it, that kind of um, yeah. catharsis. And, and originally, like, I I think when I, when I was a child, I talk a bit about this uh, in the book my obsession with things like slavery and the Holocaust. And so when I first learned about those, when, when I was young, I was a very happy go lucky, naive child, a lot like Sean is today. <laughs> and uh, when I first heard about, you know, the slavery in the movie roots or the TV miniseries roots, it horrified me. And I had to know everything I could because I wanted to know how can people be so awful? Like what, what, triggers them to do that and for for some of my stuff it is trying to understand why people do the things they do like there, there is you know monsters aren't born in a vacuum they're they're created and what happens it turns someone into a monster what happens that uh you know society overlooks things that are happening right b- beneath our noses um you know the holocaust went on and there were a lot of willing accomplices to that. And how, how does that happen? What the hell happens? And I've always tried to understand these things. Uh, and, and for me, horror is part of that. And and not just horror, but writing dark fiction, thrillers, uh, even our sci-fi. I, I'm always, you know, dealing with some dark subject matter, uh, trying to understand either outside forces or internal ones that motivate people to become you know what they are and also the other side like how how does a person overcome overcome the darkness either within or without uh, outside of them how do they how do they extinguish that how do they protect you know the people in their lives so it's it's mm. it's all kind of related yeah i mean i i think i'm i'm similar in that way um and many of my books have a lot of religious history and you know inquisition stuff or <laughs> you know <laughs> dark dark things that have happened fun. because of yeah really fun <laughs> like comedy yeah yeah um but it's it's interesting because again like you i i have to research these things and and learn you know how, how could that have happened and and um uh, and why to a point. But I, one of the things that's difficult when we research things, like I am a total research nut. So we actually just um, were in Lisbon in Portugal. And, you know, I stood in the square where they burnt all the Jews in one of these auto de fe's. And it was, it was kind of horrific to stand there in modern <laughs> Lisbon. And, and, and this is something I'll be writing about. And I'm, you know, I'm researching it. So how do we research things or try and write authentic characters like authentic villains um and stop ourselves from from getting really depressed or falling down into this dark hole yeah that can be difficult um i i think one of the the things that depressed me most i was writing a book called uh crash and i it's a story about a man that that lost his child in a car crash and 
he can't remember it and he's obsessed with trying to recover his memories. So he drives around taking photos of car crashes and trying to trigger his own memories. And there's like a, a supernatural sort of element to it where he sees something in the photos and that's like the cool part of the story. But when I was researching it, you know, I've, I lost my best friend in a car accident. I've, I've been on scene in enough car accidents uh, when I was walking, uh, when I was skipping school one day in high school and uh, I was walking in this girl was driving really fast and failed to turn and she smashed into a pole. And I was like the first person there. Luckily she was okay. Another time I saw, uh, I was first on the scene Well, me and my friend were first on the scene where this guy's truck, um, was obliterated by these giant cement uh, sewage pipes he was carrying and he was crushed. And I went to the door uh, to see if I could help him. And all I saw was blood coming out of it, but I hadn't seen, you know, a whole lot of, you know, car accidents in the things you would like, I didn't take note of the things you would need to remember to write the book. So I went online and I went to some website where there was a video of a, a this car crash somewhere in Europe. It was, like 40 cars and it was just somebody walking around with a camera walking up to the people that were like dying in their cars and they weren't helping them or anything. And I was just so horrified by it. And mm. it, it still is like, it's that thing that, you know, it stays in your head and you wish you'd never seen it. It was like that. I was, you know, trying to research or make my story authentic. And I just saw this, you know, there's, there's, a person dying and they're just looking down at them and they walk on to the next one. And like, who is filming this? Are they a journalist? Why aren't they helping? I, I didn't get it. And it just, it disturbed the hell out of me. Uh, but to answer your question, I, I have to take a walk. I can't, I can't do anything with that other than, you know, put it in my story and try to process it and, you know, try to find some ray of hope somewhere in the, in the story. Uh, but the real world stuff, the real world bad stuff that, you know, you come up with in your research and that you see in the news and all of that, it's hard. I got, I got to take a walk and clear my mind. Otherwise it, it, it really weighs me down. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think in my normal life, like I don't watch, uh, it's very hard for you Americans because you have TV news everywhere, but I, I don't, yeah. I haven't watched TV news in years. I mean, I just don't watch TV news and we don't have it in our bars and things like, like you do in America. So it's you, not a sport. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it does seem like that over there. Like you it's can't gladiator. avoid it. <laughs> It's kind of crazy, but it's, I do, I was wondering, you know, cause I find that once, you know, if there's something I want to tackle and I tackle it and then I finish the book and I do feel like, okay, I finished that book. And although the themes might come up again, I, I feel like part of it is left in the pages of that yes. book. So d does that happen to you? Yes. Uh, usually, you know, yeah, what, what you said, uh, if, if you write about it, you're kind of getting it down the page. A lot of times when I write something, I'm getting it out and it's out of my head. Uh, sometimes it's a joke because I don't remember my own story. Uh, so, yeah, that, that does help me. And, you know, I, I've heard from readers that, you know, stuff I've written has helped them get through tough times. And that that means a lot to me. Uh, mm. I would hate I would hate to write a book that was just so dark and was stuck in someone's head and made them miserable and pressing. Uh, so, so I try not to do, you know, really bleak endings. Short stories are a little different. You can do whatever. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, but, it's true. Yeah. But with a novel or a series, you don't want it to end with everybody dying. You're like, why did I waste my time on this? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I, I very much focus on that ray of hope. And I think um, Jonathan Mabry, whose books I love, um, a horror writer, thriller writer, um, you know, said his books are not about the monsters. They're about the people who fight the monsters, you know, yeah. whether that's a human monster or, or whatever. And uh, in your book, you say another quote here, there should always be a flower pushing through the cracked sidewalk. So how do we make sure there are rays of hope in our books? You, you look for the things that, that survive the darkness, the things that bring us together. Uh, a lot of times, you know, when horrible things happen in people's lives, you know, they, they rally around each other, they help each other, um, or maybe they find some connection they didn't have before, like estranged you know, friends, lovers, siblings or whatever. I think dark things, the darkness in the world can bring us together if we allow it. And that, that has to be, that has to be, has to mean something. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm leaving a dramatic pause. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, oh yeah. So I agree. I think we have to have that ray of hope. And also I like, maybe I feel like, um, by winning in the book, it almost acts as like a talisman in the real world to say, look, my character or whatever the character is, has won in the way that winning is in this particular book, whatever that means. Um, and that's, the triumph is that you can go through this, but you can survive or hopefully someone does. <laughs> yeah. And when, and like I said, when I was younger and, you know, I was dealing with bullying and just a miserable existence as a, a child and teenager, the, the books did show me some rave, even if they were fiction, they showed me that, you know, you know, someone wrote this book and they probably, you know, had a bad time too, or the characters in them are maybe based on people somehow in their own life or whatever. It, I don't know. It, it just gave me a sense of hope that other people out there, you know, have been through similar things and they found a way through it. And mm. to me that, that means a lot because, you know, we can, we tend to get isolated as, you know, the more connected we are, the more isolated we feel. And sometimes it just helps to know that, you know, somebody else has been through this. They got through this somehow. And that, maybe you can get through it too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, did, I do just want to mention, uh, I mean, you, you know, reading your book and I've, I know a bit about your story and you have gone through some really awful things. And I, well, I was thinking about my life and I mean, I've been through some stuff, but you know, I haven't been through what you have. And I wanted to say to anyone who's listening and they're like, do you know what? My life is great, but I still like horror. That's fine too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my mum always says to me, what, what did I do to you? And I'm like, mum, it's not you. You know, I think, um, you know, I've been called an old soul. You know, there are pictures of me as a very young child looking really old like you know because because I I've, I as long as I can remember from my earliest memories I've thought about death and dying and um you know the the veil being thin and being on the other side of it and you know just obsessed with this <laughs> these so topics. you were a blast at children's birthday parties oh, I never went I'm an introvert I don't want to go to parties um <laughs> but it was you know it's it's so interesting and I just say that to my mom I'm like mom it's not you it's just it's just the thing in my head it's fine so she doesn't she doesn't like to read some of my darker books but um I I do uh I do want to switch 
um, because we're almost out of time, but I want to switch to uh, you as a writer at at this point in time. Um, You know, so you've obviously been co-writing now for pretty much a decade and you and Sean and Johnny are still podcasting at the Story Studio podcast. And we've known each other online now for 10 years. And I wondered if you could maybe talk about like, what are your thoughts right now as a a mature indie in a space that just has been crazy change in the last 10 years. It's ever shifting. It's, you know, I, I hate to put a pin on anything because it changes tomorrow. Um, yeah, I think all of us indies, you know, we, we've stepped up our game. We're, we're becoming more professional, uh, obviously podcasting, not podcasting, I'm sorry, audiobooks. you know, really taken off. And, TV rights, movie rights, all of that stuff. That is, you know, that I think that's where the future is. People always read, obviously. Um, but finding other places to put your stories and connect with people, that's a big thing. Uh, personally for us, you know, we, we focused on, you know, the smarter artist thing and doing the, the seminars and teaching and all that stuff. And that was never really my thing. Uh, Sean and Johnny, you know, they, they love that. They like sharing their knowledge with the world. Uh, now we've, we've kind of shifted gears. We want to focus more on fiction. That's what we've been doing. Uh, most of our, you know, income comes from fiction. Now we, we've invited other people into our studio and instead of doing, you know, uh, courses and seminars and stuff like that. We're just releasing our stuff as, you know, stone table books, stone tablet books are the smaller ones. That's what the into the darkness one is. It's one of them. Um, so we're still like sharing the information that we have, but it, we're not letting it. I think before we let it, uh, take over more of our space than we wanted to. We want to focus more on fiction and that's, you know, we course corrected and did that because, I certainly don't like to spend all of my time teaching. I would way more like to just write my stories and, you know, let the other stuff, you know, do, do it in smaller increments. And that, that's why I did this one book. And maybe I'll do another book in another 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> another 10 years. Yeah. So um, we mentioned uh, screenwriting there. And it's something you, uh, I know you've been interested in a long time and, you know, you, you love movies and, and stuff. Do you, so how is that playing a part now for, you know, are you turning your own books into scripts or is that something oh, yeah. you'd, you'd like to go into? Yeah. Well, we sold Crash uh, a couple of years ago and I think it's being made into a movie. I don't know. It kind of like, if it happens, it does. If not, then... I don't know. I guess we get the rights back after however many years. But yeah, we've definitely got uh, in-house. We're producing a lot of scripts. Uh, We've got different people that we're in talks with and different stuff in either in production, pre-production or whatever. I I don't know how much is out there, how much I can say. So, Mm, but that, that is a huge focus for us because we have, we have so many stories. We're storytellers and uh, all of us, you know, want to take that to the next level. For me, I've always wanted to write TV. That's a movie would be fine, but I want to do TV. That's where my heart space is. And I don't think I will feel like content until I have a TV show that, you know, is out there and we've got several lines in the water. Oh, cool. So did you, did you write the adaptation of, of Crash as a, as a, a screenplay? Uh, no, I was involved in it, Sean and, uh, somebody else wrote that and I was involved and I went over it afterwards because I don't really, 
not well versed in script writing. Mm. So I, I will. Uh, I've worked on a few with Sean, but I he's way better at that than I am. So if I need to, I will. But mostly I focus on the story and in writing the books. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I agree with you. I mean, I think it's so funny because I did a bit of uh, screenwriter, did some courses and I wrote a script that was for um, um, my Map of Shadows book, which is kind of dark fantasy, but it's actually split world and it's got this massive universe. And I pitched it to an agent and he said... <laughs> It's really great, but it'll cost about 120 million to get made. Yeah. So no, no one's going to make that. <laughs> and his number one suggestion was, can you please write just a small horror movie? Because that's the thing that gets, that's what, where everyone starts. And then and you write they, a quiet place. Yeah. <laughs> And then things kind of progress from there. So it's interesting because what you've said about Crash, I haven't read that one, but um, is, you know, a guy, it doesn't sound like big budget. It sounds like no. it could be quite small budget. And that it's so funny because we never think about budget, do we, with books, but you have actually, to think about it. <laughs> actually, I did. Okay. The, oh. the, the first series we did, uh, uh, well, we actually did Available Darkness first. So that doesn't kind of count. Yesterday's Gone was our first, you know, serial that we did. That's huge budget. Whoever makes that, it's going to have to spend a billion dollars. Okay, so th it's our hottest series, but it's also, it, it's like our Game of Thrones. Whoever buys it, it's probably going to have to spend a lot of money on it. Mm. So that that's, after that, though, I Sean and I both started thinking, okay, let's think about, you know, location. Let's think about, you know, what the budget actually would be. And most of our books since then have been with the thought of, you know, this could be done for less money. Uh, like our white space series, it all takes place on a small Island uh, off of Washington state. So that has very much been in my mind in a lot of our writing that that's like one of the only forward thinking things I think that I've done. <laughs> Wow, I really it's that's so interesting. And it's funny because every single idea, like I've got a list of things I want to write next year and that just everything's big budget. <laughs> and I'm just like, stop it. What is wrong with you? But then, you know, when we watch a movie on a on a Friday night, it, I just love big budget movies with lots of explosions and <laughs> yeah it, I, I think for me though part of it is like I like those movies every now and then, but there's so many like I okay. If you take a movie like Independence Day, uh, you know, big alien invasion movie, or you take the movie Signs by M. Night Shyamalan. Mm. Signs was a much smaller movie about alien invasions, and I cared a hell of a lot more about them, those characters than anybody. I don't even remember anybody in Independence Day. So Will Smith, surely. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember his character. I don't remember anything about him, but I remember everything about the characters in Signs. I think... For for me anyway, I mean everybody's got different tastes. For me, I I like a smaller cast of characters that I can care more deeply about, and that that's kind of the stuff I write. Uh, some of it's you know big popcorn movie, yeah, definitely. But I I do like I prefer the smaller smaller set, more in depth with the characters sort of stories, and I think those translate to TV better and movies. Um, at least, you know, from a production standpoint. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And I think it's a great place to, to stop because, you know, it is about who you are as a writer and what you want to create in your lifetime. So I'm glad that you decided to create um, Into the Darkness. I think it's a, a really useful book. So tell people where they can find you and your books and your podcast and everything you do online. 
All right. Me, uh, DavidWWright.com. Uh, that's my blog. Um, for Into the Darkness, uh, sterlingandstone.net slash darkness. And for everything else, for like Stone Table and I think our podcast, everything, sterlingandstone.net slash stone table, all one word. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Dave. That was great. Thank you for having me. I hope to see you again in another, you know, few years. So I hope you found the interview with Dave useful today and that it gave you some ideas about how you could use the darker side of your history or personality in your writing and help others through sharing your truth. I know that self-censorship and fear of judgment is a real thing because I deal with it myself, but just start to push the boundaries a little and see how it goes. And of course, you can write stuff, you never have to publish it, but sometimes just writing it can help. So next week, I'm talking about how to sell more books with reader funnels with Mark Dawson. I also ask Mark about how he developed such self-confidence in his fiction, because he and I met when he was not the famous Mark Dawson. (laughs) And uh, I've seen him grow into the sort of publishing and business juggernaut that he he is now, and it's super impressive. Uh, So I ask about self-confidence because it's something I know I know you might be surprised, but I still suffer with and I know many people do. We also talk about um, why we think it's only day one for independent authors. Sometimes it seems that everyone knows about it, that everyone is an empowered creator, but not at all. And we've started to see some encouraging signs that the word is spreading. But the indie movement is still young, my friends. So uh, do not despair if you feel like you're just starting out. I still feel like I'm just starting out because things change so much. And uh, yeah. I'm still excited to be here, so I hope you will stay with me on the journey. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>